Uh, a scripture reading today comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop of, for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you all today. Um, I have known of this church for a long time, and I've known your pastor for quite a long time. I came into the New York Metro Presbytery in 2002, and David had come in uh, just a little before me. And in my very first meeting, I remember this, uh, at that time, young man, and, and I was younger then too, uh, David has kept his hair. I, you wouldn't recognize my pictures of me from then. Um, but David's standing up giving a report for the shepherding team, which is a care team. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't understand this lingo, the presbytery is the code word for regional church that we use. Um, and, uh, he, and he serves in the regional church in this care capacity. And I thought, what a gracious guy. And uh, over the years, they've received a lot of encouragement from him. And I want to thank you on behalf of our whole church in the New York region and just express our gratitude for our appreciation for this church as just a healthy, stable, consistent, a warm expression of the Church of Jesus Christ in Astoria. And I've already been so encouraged by your worship as that kind of substantial understated elegance that so fits in with this community and has already been a blessing to me. Um, and I want to thank you also on behalf of RTS for the way you've cared for one of our students who is now dear to you, uh, JC, came here as an intern. And so we're here to serve the church as an institution. 
Uh, and so it makes us especially happy to see one of our students growing and thriving in your presence and with your encouragement. So this morning in this particular passage, uh, we want to consider the subject of growth. It's intuitive to us, isn't it, in many ways. I see children here who are still growing physically, on, only taller. Um, I'm struggling to grow not at all now, um, trying to reduce growth even. Um, but uh, growth is intuitive to us, isn't it? Uh, we grow in all sorts of ways, and we want to grow. We celebrate growth. It is a positive aspect of our culture that we encourage growth and indeed, part of our, our period of history, the growth in many ways is more possible than ever before. Uh, we mentioned even with transportation, and the, the, uh, it's, it's, of course, it's incredibly difficult, but compared to ages past, you know, the, that it's even possible for Russians and Ukrainians to make it here, for example, in that amount of time compared to previous ages, not at all minimizing the incredible hardship that must have come with that. All that to say, growth is something that we should be happy about and, and can be and are positive about. And this is a passage here uh, rich with growth. It's not the agricultural kind of growth, although Jesus uses agriculture as a metaphor to teach us. Um, it's not biological growth, but it's this personal kind of growth that this passage is rich with. So the first, there's this profound change in this Samaritan woman uh, the Samaritans did not have cordial ethnic relations with the Jews in the first century. Jesus engages with this woman in a surprising way. She's a woman with a past that has led her to a place of being isolated from her community, and, um, and she grows. Um, and, and she not only grows personally in her, in her own sense of freedom and dignity, she grows in her voice, the way she acts, the what she says. And because of her growth, her whole town where she comes from um, grows. They grow in their perspective about who Jesus is. They come to see him like her, like her as the Messiah. So there's the growth of the Samaritan town where this woman comes from. The question of who Jesus is is still a fascinating question today, isn't it, for many people? How many of you have seen the clip of Stephen Colbert and the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman? Oh, well, this is fun. I've just done you a favor. Um, go and Google those two names, and you'll find Stephen Colbert packaging in about, you know, three or four minutes some of the best insights of New Testament scholarship to refute the claims of Bart Ehrman, who's the leading critic of New Testament Christianity today. It's, it's, it's quite entertaining. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of views, and it'll be a thousand plus two hundred views today um, after you all look at it. It really, it really is good. And I just, I cite that because this question of who is Jesus and growing in our perspective of who Jesus is, is so relevant perennially, remains relevant today, even as people are less interested in the church, there continues to be a lot of interest in who Jesus is, and even in Jesus versus the church, right? That we're more interested in Jesus and less interested in the church. But we see this growth in our perspective of, uh, in the perspective of who Jesus is also in this passage. And there's another kind of growth here as well. This passage speaks of not only how we can grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, but this passage also describes how we participate in the growth in the number of other people who will come to see Jesus as the life-giving Messiah. If you come to see Jesus as life-changing, 
you find freedom and joy in Jesus, it's natural to want to see that spread to others. But then there comes, well, how does this happen? Whose responsibility is it? And all of that. And what's so encouraging about this particular passage about the growth of those who come to see Jesus as life-giving is we often approach that whole endeavor, which we call Christian mission, with this great burden, and we start to internalize it as if it's up to us to make all these people see who Jesus is. And this passage reminds us that it's not so much something that we do, um, but instead there's something in us that needs to change. It's not that it's our work to make others see Jesus, but rather the emphasis of this passage is if we just see the way that other people need Jesus, that's what needs to change with us. The work has already been done. There's kind of a levity that comes in in this particular text when it comes to the whole enterprise of Christian mission. Well, the reason that Christianity is good news is because this growth, this life, to use John's word, is in Jesus and it is free. Most of the other growth that we do is not free. We pay handsomely for it. One of the ways my family's growing right now is I have a senior in high school. We're just waiting, you know, with white knuckles on all the college acceptances or rejections to come back. And then after we celebrate and mourn that, my wife and I will be paying for growth. My son is interested in graduate school, which means we'll continue to pay for growth, having already paid some for his college, although he generously rewarded us with many scholarships. But you know what I mean, growth isn't free most of the time, and we, we're happy to pay for good growth. But the good news of Christianity is that the Gospel of John begins, not with this passage, but with the statement that in him is life, and the life is the light of men. Growth and life are in Jesus, and it's free. He's free. And it is indeed tragic that many people see Christianity and the church as limiting growth and personal potential when the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to give people new life and set them on a path of growth with God. So this is a very hopeful message for us. But as we consider this, let's, let's first of all look at this passage. I invite you to take it. I'm, I'm so pleased with how much Scripture is printed here. You know, the good thing about having this much Scripture in the service is that the preacher messes up. You still got something, right? You know, you got something when you walk away from it. And that's actually a comfort to the preacher because we're prone to mess up as well. Um, I'm sitting here thinking, this is incredible. There's so much truth here. It takes pressure off a little bit. Um, but if you look at the passage here, um, I'll, be, I'll be referencing it. And let's first see the what and the why of growth. If you look in your passage at verse 27, um, the first thing we should see here is that these disciples come back and it says, just then. We don't get these kind of time references very often in Scripture. When they come out that clearly, they're very important. There's a, there's a key transition here. This Samaritan woman has come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. At that very moment that she has had this massive event of personal growth, the disciples come back. They left, her, left Jesus with her. And it's just at that moment they come back, and the text says they're surprised to find him talking with a woman because in that day it wasn't socially normal. 
for a Jewish teacher like Jesus to be alone with a woman. It wasn't normal for Jews to associate closely with Samaritans. So this is awkward. This is awkward. And uh, they're surprised, but notice how the text says, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? What do they do with this awkward moment? They avoid the moment. They shift to something more comfortable, food. This may be the first indication of comfort food in the ancient world. This awkward moment. I don't know why he's doing this. I'm not cool with this. I'm wondering why. I'm wondering what but I'm not going to ask it. Instead, they're like, geez, you want something to eat? (laughs) Um, Comfort food. We've all been there to one degree or another. But see, they don't go deeper with Jesus in this moment. They shift to food. Now, I've had to do some very helpful psychological work myself to reflect on why I eat the way I eat. It's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm sorry to drag you through this, but it is instructive. And so I lost 40 pounds. You're like, this guy used to be really big. Um, I lost 40 pounds because I went through this program that asked me just to pause and say, why are you eating right now? And I realized there are all sorts of bad reasons to do this. And so, um, you know, I, if I come back here in, in four months and I gain 40 pounds back, you'll just know I need, I need some additional help. But uh, I'm not promising I won't for a person that I am. But my point is, um, these are, this is a psychological tool that moved me towards self-reflection. That was very helpful and essential very helpful and essential. But the Bible says that true reflection, to go deeper and even to get an accurate self-reflection, to get an accurate self-reflection, you're going to have to actually look at Jesus and not only look at yourself. You must pause and look at yourself. You must. I'm all for that. But to get an accurate self-reflection, you're going to have to look at yourself and Jesus at the same time. We can't see ourselves rightly or our our situation rightly without seeing Jesus. We must ask, what and why? What does Jesus want? Why is Jesus involved in this? That's what disciples don't ask. Why don't we ask when we get in difficult situations awkward situations, trials, why don't we ask, what does Jesus want? And why is he involved in this situation with me? Well, there are many reasons why we don't do that. It could be we've fallen out of habit with even being in the presence with Jesus, so we're no longer even thinking about Jesus. It could be that if we are surrounded by Christians and Christian activity, we actually are thinking about Jesus quite a bit, Maybe we struggle deep down inside to believe that Jesus is really present in our lives and has a what and a why. Maybe we struggle deep down with believing that the Father of Jesus who sent him to serve us, loves us, and is good for us so that we can ask, what does Jesus want and why is he here? Many of us, deep down, have a default mode that doesn't believe that God is for us or loves us, especially when something's going wrong. Deep down, 
We question that. See, when we question that, we're not going to be comfortable with asking what Jesus wants in this situation or why Jesus is involved because we're scared it may not be good news for us. But it is good news. It is always good news to go beneath the surface. We're scared it could be a burden too heavy to carry for us to ask what or why when Jesus in another passage says, my burden is light. We're scared that to follow Jesus in the difficult situation could be too confining, too restrictive, too painful. When Jesus says in another passage, my yoke is easy. Hit your wagon to me, go with me. It's going to be easier, not more painful. Maybe these are reasons why we don't ask what or why, but I wonder in your own life right now, what is happening that's awkward, that's painful, that's difficult, that you can pause and say, Jesus, what do you want? What do you seek? Why are you here? And go deeper for growth. So there's that what and why of growth. And then you can see this work of growth in this passage. Now, when we think about growth, we often talk about do the work. It's very popular in um, kind of not, not maybe formal psychological circles, but, you know, you hear that kind of popularized. You need to do the work. You know, do your emotional work, deal with your stuff, that sort of thing. Do the work. Um, and a lot of growth does take work. And while the disciples are a bit of a negative example here, and not asking Jesus what or why, at least they're a positive example that they did return to Jesus in the first place. I mean, they left what they had to, what they had to follow Jesus. They put themselves in the presence of Jesus. And this is good for them, because even though they don't ask what or why, um, Jesus asks. Jesus presses forward where they don't press forward. See, the truth is, we'll never ask what and why all the time the way that we should. And this is one of the reasons why it's always good to put ourselves in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of his people. I congratulate you for overcoming daylight savings time. It was real. My, wife, my daughter had a high school event last night, and we had to stay up late for her. And then I was reminded by my son it was daylight savings time. I thought, oh, snap, I'm preaching too. This is going to be terrible. But you'll be happy to know that I felt especially rejuvenated when I woke this morning. But all that to say, the whole daylight savings time thing, I appreciate you being here. Most of you are still awake um, uh, as well. So being in the presence of Jesus is so important because we don't ask what or why. We don't always put in the work. But what's beautiful here is that Jesus presses in. And look in verse 32 of this passage. They're awkward, so they don't ask him what they should. Instead, they try to go on the surface level. Rabbi, you want something to eat in verse 31. And Jesus says in verse 32, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus takes their surface engagement and graciously, kindly leans in. He doesn't pop them, doesn't snap at them. He says, I'm going to go deeper with this because you're not doing it. And that's a mercy for Jesus to do that. And he says that his food is to do the will of him who sent him, speaking of his father, and to finish his work. Now, food nourishes and gives strength, doesn't it? 
Jesus is saying he is nourished and supplied with strength by doing the work his Father in heaven gave him to do. And in John's gospel, this work from the Father is particularly the work of accomplishing our salvation in John's gospel. This phrase is used in similar language uh, many times in John's gospel. Um, for example, one place where Jesus sums it up is John 17, 4 where Jesus is anticipating going to the cross, and he says to his Father in a prayer, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That work that Jesus is referring to is the work of living, dying, and rising, that we may be healed, restored to God the Father, grow, and live forever. This work that Jesus is doing is a work for our healing, which in the Greek, the Greek word for salvation and healing are the same word. It's a cosmic sort of holistic healing. This is the work that Jesus came to do. And Jesus says in that verse that he brought glory on the earth in this way. What is it that Jesus wants to be known for? Now, this is where you'll have interesting points of conversation with people. If you've grown up in a Christian church like this one, and you're asked the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? I bet most people here would give the answer uh, to, for our sins, for, so that we could be forgiven. It's an interesting point of dialogue this week, and a very approachable sort of question you can ask people who are interested in Jesus. Just start asking people why Jesus died on the cross. The first time I did that, it was astonishing to me and surprising that people did not know why Jesus died on the cross at all. Many people, most people didn't know. Now, you may find something different in your own experience, but it's a very easy way to engage people just at the conversation because people are interested in, in talking about Jesus. But Jesus wants to be known for this work. This work of living, dying, and rising so that we can be healed, restored, grow, and live forever. That's what he wants to be known for. That's his glory. That's what he wants. Uh, he wants us to see him as that for us as well. He's done the work. And because he has done this work, it means that there is also the grace of growth. That is, Grace, because he did the work. Grace is getting something for free because someone else did the work. I appreciate very much people who do a good job in the hospitality industry. Um, because if you go to, you, you know just because you pay for something, it doesn't mean it's going to work out well necessarily, right? You know, you can go to a hotel and you paid for the room, but it's still not clean. You know, you go to a restaurant, you pay for the food, but it's not good. So we don't take that for granted. It's appropriate to express thanks. But at the end of the day, it's not free. We did pay for it. Um, but grace is when we get something for free and someone else did the work. And because Jesus is committed to doing this work, this growth comes to us freely and graciously. There is a type of work that we do. It's called belief. It's called faith. 
it's trusting. Our work is primarily a receiving type of work. Our work is putting ourselves in the pathway of Jesus, hearing the words of Jesus. There's a work to that. There is a work sometimes that we feel in turning away from doing the wrong thing to follow Jesus. Absolutely, there can be that work, but primarily it is a receptive type of work to receive something that's been done for us. And so there's a grace of growth. If you look in verse 38, Jesus starts using this metaphor of the harvest to talk about the type of work he's calling his disciples to do. And as he does that, he, he comes to a place in verse 38 where he says that he sent the disciples to reap what they have not worked for. He says, others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now this section of scripture around this sowing and reaping discussion is subject to various sort of legitimate interpretations, if you will. In other words, people who believe a lot of the same things about everything else come here and they're like, well, I don't know exactly what this means. There could be different reference intended here and so on. Um, the key question here is who are the others in verse 38 who have done the hard work? Now, I like to place the emphasis on this question is it's not just others who have done the work, but others who have done the hard work. Because not every work is as easy as other work. We know that, right? Um, is this the Father who has sent the Son to do this work? And the Father who draws people to believe in the Son? Is that one of the others, or is that the other represented here? Is this the Son, Jesus, who has accomplished the work? Does this refer to the saints of the Old Testament who labored in faith without ever seeing the Messiah to bring about this place that Jesus' disciples find themselves now in the history of God's people? Was that the hard work? They're laboring in faith without ever seeing the Messiah? What is meant by others? Well, my own view here is that Jesus is taking this general principle of sowing and reaping, someone else does the work, someone else reaps the benefits, and that he's applying it to himself. And part of the reason I take that view is this emphasis on hard work here. It's not just work, which is mentioned throughout the passage, but here's emphasis, hard work. He has done the hard work of securing our salvation of making it possible for us to be healed, of providing a gracious type of growth. He has sown his life to do it. The disciples and we benefits, benefit from the fruit of his labors. And this is why this growth for us is of grace, because Jesus did the hard work. Now, when he's speaking to his disciples here, he's talking about sending them out that others may benefit from this work. So I think there's a double entendre in a sense. Well, it's really the same hard work that Jesus does holistically, right? It's the work of accomplishing salvation. But then perhaps the others is a plural there, where the work that Jesus accomplishes, others are doing the hard work of causing people to see their need for it, other being the Holy Spirit. 
Others are doing the hard work of opening hearts and minds, the God the Father. And Jesus himself has done this work of accomplishing it. But the point is, it's by grace that we participate in the work of Christ ourselves that we find this healing and this path of growth because he did the work. And it's also he who's done the work that others may see. It's not for us to open anyone's eyes. What does Jesus say here? He says in um, verse 35, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. Jesus doesn't say go and open their eyes. We can't do that. The disciples couldn't do that. But he says, see that other people are ripe for the harvest. See that other people need Jesus. And when we see that we need him, and we see it's a gracious work for us, and that there's a gracious potential for others, we're more inclined to see that they need Jesus. But so often when we don't see that we need Jesus, of course, if I don't think I really need Jesus or God really cares about me, why in the world would I think anybody else does? Right? That's natural. And if I haven't experienced the joy and freedom of Christ at all, not even intermittently, it's going to be hard to think that he's going to be there for somebody else who's having a real problem, like with their rent or their employment or their marriage or depression or whatever people are facing. That's a gracious work for us. And when we experience him, we just need to ask him to open our eyes to see how much other people need him as well. Well, then in this passage comes the fruit of this growth. Now, here the Samaritan woman comes back on the scene in a big way. She had left this conversation. Perhaps she sensed the awkwardness of the disciples and knew this wasn't going to go well. One on 13 now, uh, one woman with um, 12 additional Jewish men now, and she says, thanks, I'll just go back home. And she goes into the town where she came from and we see this incredible fruit of growth. First of all, the incredible fruit of growth in her own life. We know just previous to this passage, this woman came to the place. She grew to see Jesus as the Messiah. And foundational to that growth was the healing of her dignity. She goes from being alone and ashamed at this well as a social outcast in the middle of the day to going back to the town that she was outcast from and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. With this dignity that she gained, she also regains her voice. She speaks, and there's a sort of levity and joy and lightness to her voice, even in the few words that we have here. She also grows in relationship to her past. All of us here have a past that we have to address. Some things we're happy about, some things we're not happy about. Some things make us feel good. Some things make us feel embarrassed or ashamed. All of us have that past. And look how she grows in relationship to her past. She's no longer crippled by her past. She tried to deceive Jesus about her past because she was so embarrassed about it. And Jesus pressed in with her just like he does with the disciples. And he loved her in the midst of that. He, he removed that shame in his relationship with her. And now she has a new relationship with her past. 
Her past is no longer shameful to her. Her past now becomes proof that Jesus is the Messiah because he's healed her of her past. Isn't that incredible, powerful growth and change and freedom? And no matter what is in your past, if you hear nothing else, I want you to know you're not imprisoned by your past. You're not imprisoned by your past. But in relationship with Jesus, your past becomes part of the story of why he's the Messiah. We all need to be healed in some way from our past. Forgiven, healed, restored, all sorts of things. You're not imprisoned by your past. That too is a good news of the Christian faith. So there's this fruit in this woman in her life. And then we see fruit coming from her because as she bears witness to the Messiah in her hometown, people hear about the Messiah from her and believe. And then the passage says, this kind of interesting uh, play on words here, it says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then down in verse 41, Jesus comes into town after that, they invite him, or they, they come out to Jesus after that, and then they invite him into town, and then it says, and because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. Many through her, many more through Jesus, but it starts with her, this fruit, simply of sharing how Jesus had healed her and enabled her to grow, and many more then hear for themselves, and then they grow. There's a lightness to the whole narrative here that just jumped off the page. It's all fun and easy and exciting here. Like this is how we want church to be. <laughs> um, it's just a picture of what Jesus has spoken about. This is what it looks like whenever it's clear that someone else has done the work and we're just reaping in the benefits. That doesn't always play out that way in, in reality, of course, but we should see the lightness here because it calls us to recognize if we see it as a big burden, then we're not seeing it right. A big burden, that is, to share Jesus. We're not seeing it rightly. We're not experiencing it rightly. We're not experiencing him rightly. Take that burden off of ourselves and go back to Jesus. And the greatest fruit of the work that we see here comes at the very end of this passage. If you look at verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now this will surprise you. How many times do you think savior of the world occurs in the New Testament? Only twice. That surprised me. Because world occurs all in the New Testament, Savior occurs over in the New Testament, but this actual phrase, Savior of the world, only occurs twice in the New Testament. Here and in 1 John 1, 14, the same phrase appears. It is the concluding declaration that this is the one who heals, restores, allows us to grow. And it comes from a people who were kind of marginalized, looked down upon, despised, on the outs, whatever you want to call it, you know, how we have all felt at times and how we have all made others feel at times. That's how the Samaritans were. And they're like, yeah, this is the Savior of the world. 
You know, one of the themes of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the king. And in the ancient world, kings, in the ancient Roman world, this phrase, savior of the world, was sometimes applied to Roman rulers as well. Now, in our own context, it's not too often that people look to an individual to save them, although that can happen. We see that happen sometimes politically in some sense. But more often than not in today's world, we look to ourselves, to the resources that we have to help ourselves. We look to science. We look to money. We look to education. We look to relationships. And all of these are good things given to us by God and can become part of the story of the growth that God wants for us. But the good news of the Bible is that foundationally, Jesus is Savior of the world. He has done the hard work. He has borne the burden. And He is the one who can heal you that you may grow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that You are the Savior of the world. As we prepare to come this morning to the table that you have set before us to remind us of your life, death, resurrection on our behalf, we pray that you would help us to explore this question of what you want, what you want in our lives now, what you seek now, why you are with us now, what you will accomplish, and help us to see you were there for us, ever gracious, ready to heal, restore, and grant us a growth in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.